Oh no, technical difficulties. Mask problems, right? All right, so it is Sunday and Notre Dame is still undefeated. So plenty of reasons to worship the Lord. Uh, Last week, we started a brand new series called Finding the Meaning in the Madness. Uh, And we're taking a number of weeks to study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Perhaps this is a book that you've studied before. Maybe it's uh, it's a book that you haven't studied before. Um, This is not a book that I have ever preached through before. So uh, this is an opportunity probably for all of us to take a really deep dive into a book that I think is extremely helpful in viewing the world in a proper way. So last week, we started to set up what is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, or as he's called here, the preacher, describes for us the futility of life if life is all that happens under the sun. If all that there is is what is under the sun, and he uses this phrase, under the sun, to set up a contrast. Um, the, the sun, under the sun, is these 70 years of life that we get. And if this is all we get, then all we get is the Hebrew word hevel, which your Bible may translate as vanity or as meaningless. But what was the word that we substituted last week? Bubbles, that's right. Bubbles. Every time you see the word vanity or the word meaningless in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to substitute the word bubbles. Bubbles, bubbles, all is bubbles. Why is that? Well, because the the Hebrew word hevel literally means vapor. It means smoke. Uh, It's like a bubble. It's temporary. It is fleeting. It is impossible to grasp. It's inconsistent. It's never the same way twice. It comes with no guarantees. It's beautiful, but it's transient. It's here one moment and gone the next. There are some bubbles that are big, some bubbles that are small, some bubbles that float very nicely, some bubbles pop right away. And so, all bubbles end up eventually the same way, and that's popped. And so this is all that the Hebrew word hevel is trying to convey. If all that life is, if everything that we get is just 70 years under the sun, and that's it, Solomon asks, what's the point? It's all bubbles. And so when we look at chapter 1, The preacher lays out for us the myth of human progress, this idea that we're just getting better and better and better, more advanced, further progressed. He he breaks that down and he says, no, everything is cyclical. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. Everything that has been will continue to be. There's nothing under the sun that can be pointed to and said, well, this is new. Because all it is is just reshaping and repackaging and redoing of everything that's already been done. And no matter what is done, no matter what each individual life accomplishes, it's like sandcastles that get washed away in the tide. There's going to come a time when whatever great thing you've accomplished, washed away. It's all bubbles. 
And, and I want to repeat something else that I said last week, and that is that the preacher is not trying to say that life is actually meaningless. He's not trying to get us to think that everything is just pointless, so why even try? He's not being fatalistic, and he's not a nihilist. He's trying to open our eyes to something bigger. He's, he's shifting our perspective from something temporary to something eternal. Again, Ecclesiastes attempts to deconstruct all of the various methods of finding meaning outside of God. That's the goal. Because what he shows us is outside of God, everything is bubbles. And that's the key. Outside of God, outside of eternity, without that, it's all bubbles. And so the preacher is a gardener. He is pruning away bad theology. He's pruning away bad psychology. He's even pruning away bad epistemology. And this week, he's going to continue pruning away more ways that people attempt to find meaning. Pleasure, being a good person, and work. My son, Eli, is an avid learner. Eli will get very interested in a topic, and then he will dive enthusiastically in to learn whatever he possibly can about something. If it's dinosaurs, he's going to read every single dinosaur book. He's going to watch tons of dinosaur shows, and he will be able to list for you more dinosaurs than you ever thought a kid could ever know. If it's nature facts, then he will dive into anything that National Geographic puts out, whether that's books or shows or documentaries or whatever, anything that he can get his hands on. If it's Pokemon, which it typically is, he will watch every episode, he will read the Pokemon encyclopedia cover to cover, and then he'll take out a piece of paper and he'll begin to list out the Pokemon names and the Pokemon facts to quiz himself and quiz his sister and quiz mommy and daddy at dinner asking us questions that there's no way we will ever know the answer to. That's how he learns. This week, he turned his attention to the Titanic. It began with a National Geographic book that he had gotten about the Titanic. And so he reads the book and immediately wants to know more. And so he gets on the TV and searches Titanic, and he starts watching documentaries, history shows about that Titanic. And before long, uh, of course, he wants to watch the movie Titanic because he had just watched a documentary by James Cameron, the director of Titanic, a documentary that was 20 years after the movie, looking back. Okay, so he watches this movie, and then he's like, Mom, Dad, we've got to watch the movie Titanic. And Allison and I kind of look at each other and we're like, uh, I don't know. Well, what should we do here? So we kind of huddle up and we're like, all right, you know, there's definitely some bad language in this movie. Um, there's definitely some, some scenes that we need to fast forward through, yada, yada. What, what do we do? And so ultimately we decide, okay, we will watch it with you so that we can censor it as we go. Right? So when something comes up that needs to be fast-forwarded, we can have him cover his eyes. If somebody says something bad, we can be like, yeah, don't repeat that. You know, things like that. Parents of the year. Now, you might not think that a nine-year-old would be interested in watching a three-and-a-half-hour movie. That is not true. 
That is not my nine-year-old. If he is into something, this movie could be eight hours long. And he would sit there and enthusiastically watch the whole thing. So we watch the movie, and he loves it. Okay, too much. I I would say too much. Because we had to pause the movie during the part where the Titanic is sinking because he is cheering. And I'm like, dude... Like, real people died, like 1,500 people lost their lives. This is not really something to cheer about, okay? And he's like, but there's so much action. It's so cool. I've never watched a ship sink before. And I'm like, we really need to talk about you cheering at people's demise, okay? That's not okay. That's kind of twisted, all right? But he loves this, this movie. And so we spend, you know, the entire morning and then some watching this movie and then talking about it and talking about some of the things that, that happened. And one of the things that is true on the Titanic and is highlighted as one of the main story points of the movie is the fact that there are basically two classes of people that are on this boat. There is the very rich and the very poor. Listen, he's trying to correct me even now, okay? I'm trying to make a point here, son. Thank you, though. (laughs) There's very rich people and there's very poor So the rich are on the top deck. And on the top deck, you have opulence. Absolute luxury. Every type of pleasure imaginable. The best food and drinks. Staff at your beck and call waiting to wait on your every whim. And the best amenities of the day. Eli, what what year was it that it sank? 1912, that's right. Thank you. I forgot. That's why I have you here. So, the best amenities possible in the year 1912. Okay, there's a state-of-the-art gym. There's a heated pool, ironically, a pool on the Titanic. Uh, Squash courts, massage therapists, saunas, a Parisian cafe, dog walkers to walk the dogs that you brought. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are aboard this ship. Many of these first-class passengers are on the boat with an entire staff of their own that they have brought with them, personal servants. And these people are staying in opulent, luxurious penthouse suites that are basically like enormous luxury apartments. And tickets, okay, tickets for these passengers were up to $100,000 a piece in today's money. Adjusted for inflation, in today's money, $100,000 a piece. Luxury. Contrast this with the passengers on the bottom level. On the bottom level, these passengers slept in bunk beds, four to a room, and the rooms were about the size of a large walk-in closet. These people, of course, did not have access to any of the amenities of the first class, nor could they even be on the same decks as the first class passengers. There was a clear separation between these two classes. Now, these people were spending between three and $500 a piece for their tickets. Okay, so $300 compared to $100,000. Now, $300 is still a lot for those of us living paycheck to paycheck, right? That's, it's not exactly like that's cheap, but these people, many of them, had put their entire life savings into their tickets because they're trying to move to America. 
So they're uprooting their lives and taking a trip across the ocean to move. So their life savings are invested into this. So you have these incredibly rich people on one deck and you have poor people on the lower deck literally sleeping among the rats. But an interesting thing happened on that fateful night. Both the rich and the poor drowned when the ship went under. 1,500 out of 2,200 passengers lost their lives in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. And the ocean did not care what deck you were staying on. The, the ocean did not care what your, net, what your net worth was. The ocean did not care what you had accomplished in life up to that point. And again, on this boat, you had people who were advisors to presidents. You had world-class athletes and entertainers. You had international leaders in business and in culture. And you also had a bunch of people who, who meant nothing to the rest of the world. And the ocean took them both. Bubbles, bubbles. All is bubbles. Tonight, the preacher is going to show us in Ecclesiastes that you can spend your entire life living in pleasure and luxury, gaining acclaim, influencing the masses, leading the world in knowledge and power, And there are two enemies that will come against you no matter who you are. Time and death. And those two enemies do not care who you are or what you do. But he's also going to show us that there is true enjoyment in life. But it doesn't come from our self-indulgence. It comes from the hand of God. So, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the words will be behind me on the screen, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter. You cannot complain that I am reading this much of the word, or it makes you a bad Christian. So, here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was bubbles. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was bubbles, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also bubbles. For as the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is bubbles and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is bubbles. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is bubbles and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is bubbles. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is bubbles and a striving after the wind. So, Let's briefly remind ourselves what exactly the preacher is trying to accomplish. He is aiming to deconstruct all of the methods of finding meaning apart from God. And for him to do that is a tremendous act of service. He is trying to save us from wasting our 70 years under the sun. He's trying to rescue us from ways of thinking that will only end up in our frustration and our disappointment. So, here in chapter 2, there are three things that he talks about that the world tries to convince us are actual viable sources of meaning, fulfillment, joy, hope, satisfaction. These three things are pleasure, wisdom, and work. Pleasure, wisdom, and work. And the world tells us, in these things, you can be happy. 
Now, it's easy for us to see these three messages in our culture, right? The American dream is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you really want to enjoy life, we're told, you need to have a huge house. Fill it with nice things. Go to lots of nice places on vacation. Wear lots of nice clothes. Also, you need to buy a bigger boat. We all need bigger boats. We all admit that money can't buy happiness. And we might say, well, we know money can't buy happiness. But then we'll kind of follow that with, but money can buy me a ticket to the Bahamas. And that would make me very, very happy. And so, some of the most popular social media accounts are travel bloggers. Travel bloggers are people who literally spend all of their time jet-setting around the world, staying in the most exotic places on someone else's dime, experiencing all the world has to offer. And they rack up followers by the millions who sit at their desks at their boring dead-end jobs, wistfully scrolling through their Instagram feed, wishing that they could be lucky enough to have a life like that. If you really want to be happy and have a life worth living, you gotta fill it with pleasure, right? If you wanna be happy, the only way to do it is to be an Instagram travel blogger. Of course, not everyone can do that, right? Most of us, We'll never be able to have a life like that. But what's something that's accessible to every one of us? Being a good person. All of us can be a difference maker by living a life of kindness. So we all can contribute to the progress of the world by reducing our carbon footprint, by living responsibly, by treating everyone around us with compassion and love. And so... We start following the social media accounts of people who are minimalists. And we go, look at this person's tiny house. They got sick of draining the world of its resources. And so they moved off the grid in a bus that they converted into an apartment. And now they live in nature off of the fruits and vegetables that they grow in their garden. And all of us. Share the memes that say, be the change that you want to see in the world. And we think, you know what? I may not be able to do much, but I can make the world a better place around me. Or, maybe you're one of those people who see your advancement up a particular ladder as your place of meaning. No one can control the cards that they're dealt, you say, but you can control the hand that you play. And so you love the message that tells you, you can do anything that you set your mind to. You may be from the wrong side of the tracks, but you don't have to be stuck there like everyone else. You can rise above. And so you work your tail off to better your situation. You study, you learn, you practice, you perfect your craft. You do whatever it takes to be the best in the world at whatever it is. And your narrative promises you that if you accomplish whatever it is that you're chasing, you will be happy. These are three of the most common stories in the world. And each story 
has its famous heroes that we can look to and emulate because they have made it. And I want to be just like them. Enter the preacher. And with deft wisdom and very pointed words, he looks at all of that and says, actually, that's all bubbles. You know that social media influencer whose entire life is a party posting pictures from their latest penthouse suite? Well, that penthouse suite is on the top deck of the Titanic. You know that hashtag mom boss who's so in tune with how to live a life of practical wisdom? Well, her minimalistic tiny room is on the bottom deck of the Titanic. Oh, oh, and that super hard worker who's been toiling away at being the best in their field and they've accumulated all the trappings of the world because of it. Well, all that stuff is in the storage compartment in the bottom of the Titanic. And, and soon, something is going to happen to all three of those people. The Titanic is going to sink and they, along with all of their stuff, will be at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And at some point, someone is going to come along in a submarine and take whatever stuff they can find for themselves. Bubbles, bubbles. All is bubbles. So, let's look at each of these empty pursuits in detail. Taking notes, here is point number one. YOLO, you're only latching on to bubbles. Let's look once more at verses 1 through 11. The preacher says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. All right, buddy, it's time. Let's party. Let's do whatever it takes to party. Let's live it up. What can I do? But behold, this also was bubbles. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what, what use is it? Well, then he tells us what, what he did. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. I love how he throws that in. I was really drunk, but I was still wise in here, okay? I'm still holding on. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So here's what I did. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and... Many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. And then... I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was bubbles. I was striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
History tells us that Solomon was not only the wisest man who ever lived, he was also one of the richest men who ever lived. He was in the top 20 of the richest people who have ever lived in all of history. I think the top 10, if if I'm remembering my research correctly. He was definitely in the top percent of percent of percent, okay? In 2 Chronicles 2.15, we read this. The king, Solomon, made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore trees. That's a radical statement, okay? Gold and silver are gravel in Jerusalem, all right? They are so common, they're just colored rocks. That's how much gold and silver this dude has amassed, okay? We know that Solomon had negotiated some incredibly advantageous treaties and partnerships with other kingdoms. And these other kingdoms are bringing tribute out of their riches to him. Kings and queens from other kingdoms are literally bringing him truckloads of gold and and various other resources, cattle, slaves, possessions, fill in the blank. Second Chronicles 9 has a story of the queen of Sheba literally bringing to him five tons of gold in one trip, okay? Five tons. That is 10,000 pounds of gold that this lady brings him and says, I think you're great. Here's five tons of gold. And Solomon's like, add it to the pile. Okay, this is Scrooge McDuck. All right, he is diving every day into his big vat of money and swimming around in the gold coins, okay? He's listed here in this passage some of the things from his vast and diverse portfolio. He's got gold, he's got silver, real estate, commerce, business, cattle, servants, Food, wine, farms, vineyards, entire kingdom's worth of stuff. So when scholars look at this passage and and other passages about Solomon, commentators suggest that his net worth was north of two trillion dollars. Okay, two trillion dollars. That is more than ten times the net worth of Jeff Bezos currently the richest man in the world. More than 10 times what Jeff Bezos currently has, okay? Solomon would be doing stuff that Jeff Bezos would be like, ooh, I can't afford that. <laughs> I really can't afford to do what, uh, what you're doing, okay? Uh, you guys may be a little bit too young to remember this. Some of you remember the, the show MTV Cribs, Remember that show? Like you'd, you'd take a tour of some rich celebrity's house and they show off all their cool stuff. The, the camera's following them and they're like, here's my 5,000 square foot mansion and uh, all the cool stuff I've got in it. Here's my 35 seat theater. Isn't this cool? Here's my bowling alley. Here's my rare collection of classic cars worth millions. Well, can you imagine if MTV Cribs had toured Solomon's crib? Solomon would be like, yeah, I tiled the, the floor with gold. Uh, regular tile just wasn't working for me, so I just tiled everything with gold. And, and then I just coated all the walls with gold because I really like gold. So basically, the whole house is, is, is gold. Here, let me, let me bring you to my garage. I'll, I'll show you my collection of 15,000 chariots. 
I put spinners on all of them because I, I like how it looks. Um, and, and, and so I've got 15,000 of them. I decided that, that this, this floor of the mansion was going to be my bathroom. So this is my bathroom floor because that's the only way that I can fit all the $100 bills that I wipe with. Because there's just piles of them. And I don't really like toilet paper. I like hundreds. So that's, that's what I use up there. Oh yeah, over here's my drive-in closet. Yeah, it used to be a warehouse. And, and then I repurposed it to be my closet. And I've got this platinum like golf cart that I park at the door. Because there's no way you could ever walk through this stuff. So I got this golf cart that you can drive around the closet. The, the, the first 200 yards are just my shoes. And, and I think robes are after that. Like that's what it would be in Solomon's crib, okay? The man has everything on everything on everything. And then, then there's the concubines, okay? Solomon is said to have had a thousand women in his harem, all right? A thousand, 700 wives, 300 concubines. This is all at the same time, okay? It is not at all an exaggeration to say This man was Hugh Hefner multiplied by a big number, okay? Being that there are children in here, I'll be vague. You get the point. Suffice it to say, Solomon experienced every carnal pleasure that the mind could possibly imagine. He had more money, more physical pleasure, more fun, more stuff, more anything than anyone. And what did he say? Verse 11. Behold, it was all bubbles, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He looked at the vast pile of wealth, and he said, It's bubbles. I remember talking to someone who had spent years chasing meaning in the same pleasures. And I said to him, don't you think if that stuff was going to make you happy, you'd already be happy? If the narrative were true, if the narrative were true, rich people should be the happiest people in the world. It should be X equals more stuff, more happiness. If this, then that. They have every pleasure possible. Instead, what we find is that the rates of substance abuse and depression and anxiety among the rich are nearly double the rate of the middle class. Specifically among celebrities, okay, people who are uber rich, uber famous, and adored by masses of people. Among celebrities, one particular study showed that rock stars and musicians are 500% more likely to die of unnatural causes than the general population. And unnatural causes are things like suicide and substance abuse. Um, I think here of the words of KB, who said in one of his songs, if your life is so good, why are you always getting so high trying to escape it? This particular study showed that pop stars and rock stars die on average 25 years younger than average people. 
And, and anecdotally, we know this to be true. I mean, how often do we read stories every year about people who have it all ending their lives? And we go, why would they do that? They have everything. If culture tries to tell us that this is what happiness is, why is this stuff happening? If it were true that money and pleasure equal happiness, then these rich celebrities would be the happiest people on earth. But yet, in many cases, the opposite is actually true. As it turns out, wealth, pleasure, success, bubbles. When we hear people saying YOLO because they think that that is where meaning is actually going to be found, Solomon the preacher would step in and go, uh, actually, chief, that's pronounced YOLOB. There's a B at the end because you're only latching on to bubbles there, guy. It's empty. If that's where meaning, it is, meaning is, it's going to pop. Point number two. Wisdom beats folly before both lose the race. Wisdom can run further, but not all the way. Okay, so we can't all be rich, all right? We, we cannot all be uh, famous. We, we, we can't all be travel bloggers. But we can live wise, practical lives, right? And Mother Earth will thank us for that, won't she? Not so fast. Look again at verses 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there's more gain in light than darkness. Okay, the wise person has eyes in his head. The fool walks in darkness. Wisdom is better. He goes, I'm considering all this. And if I compare wisdom and folly, you know what? Wisdom is better. I'm walking around with my eyes wide open instead of running into things at every turn. Wisdom is better than folly. And yet, I perceived the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why have I been so very wise? It's all bubbles. For as the wise is of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, All will have been long forgotten. The wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is bubbles. And striving after the wind. So. All things considered. He says. If all that is under the sun. Is all that there is. I've had it all. I've done it all, I've experienced it all, I have kept from myself no pleasure, I have experienced everything the world has to offer. If this is all we've got, live wisely, okay? Even if you're one of those people that says, I don't believe in eternity, I believe this life is all we've got. Okay, even if you don't believe anything about God, even if you don't say, well, then I'm going to live for eternity, even if, he says, even if you're someone who says, this is all we've got, then don't turn up. Okay, don't go that route. I'm telling you, even if this is all that there is, living wisely is better. Take it from me, I've had every pleasure, 
I've also had wisdom. Wisdom is better. Do not spend your life on empty pleasure. Spend it on wisdom. But, however, that being said, the reality is the wise and the fool are on the Titanic. And no matter who you are or how you live, whether you're wise or you're foolish, the ship is sinking. It is going down no matter who you are. The reality is every single person is aware that at some point they're going to die. Right? All of us know someday I'm going to die. I don't know if it's today, I don't know if it's tomorrow. We all say, I hope it's not until I'm old and gray and I've accomplished everything that I want to accomplish in life. But I know that at some point the end is coming. And so my goal then is to fill this life with whatever is going to give me as much meaning and fulfillment and happiness and joy before I kick the bucket. Right? We, all, we, we all see the end coming and we're all doing everything we possibly can to not think about it to avoid that thought, to say, I- I'm not even going to think about that day. I'm just going to focus on living the best life that I can right now. How do I do that? Is it by being a good person? Is it by loving my family? I- is it by being kind to others, by, by being practical, by-, by trying to add value to this world? Can I be a part of world change? Can-, can I influence others in a positive way? Can I be a person who enacts policies and, and laws and-, and movements that make other people's lives better while we're all here? And, and Solomon says, yeah, do that. That's a good idea. Fight for social justice, fight for change, be a good person, be kind, love your family, do things that are healthy for your body, do things that are healthy for others, do things that are going to influence people toward positive action. Do all that. Those are good things. But those things don't change the fact that at some point you're going to croak, right? There's no amount of good that you can accomplish that will make it not true. There's nothing that you can do for the world that the world, the universe, is going to look at you and go, I changed my mind. You stick around. It's not going to happen. Do all the good stuff because it's good to do. It's good to be wise. He says, it is better as there's more gain in light than there's darkness. Okay, there's gain. But it's not going to stop the ship from sinking. At some point, the Titanic is going to hit the iceberg and you're going down with it. So ultimately, yes, your 70 years under the sun are going to be more productive and more gratifying if you live wisely. You will make life better than other people who are just trying to turn up. That's true. But then you will meet the same fate as the fool. You'll meet the same fate. You're aboard the same ship. So go ahead. Be wise. Be a good person. This 70 years will be very productive. 
then it's going to end. And also, you will be forgotten. He says, the wise, as, of the wise of the, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. Like I said last week, if you're lucky, maybe someday you will be the answer on some kid's history test. If you're lucky, okay, out of all the billions of people that live, if you're lucky, you're going to be a quiz question a hundred years from now. <laughs> Whippee! Who, who cares? You will meet the same fate as the fool and nothing will be remembered. So your good life? Bubbles. All the things that you built up? will break down. All the good that you accomplished will rot. So if that's what you're trying to find meaning in, (laughs) you're not going to find it. You're going to die and you're going to be forgotten. What a great positive message, right? But he's not done. Point number three. Toil does nothing but gather wealth for someone else. Uh, Starting in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is bubbles. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is bubbles and great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Because we can't all be travel bloggers, there's something that all of us have to have, and that is called a job, right? Every single one of us has to work a job, okay? And and I'm including parenting as one of those jobs, okay? Stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad is every bit as much of a job as anyone else, all right? Anyone who doesn't think that is a moron, okay? So we all have to work a job. And for those of us who are lucky, I shouldn't say those of us, for people who are lucky, that job is 40 hours a week. To me, 40 hours a week sounds like a vacation, okay? There have been periods in my life where I have been consistently working 80-hour weeks, okay? Working multiple jobs. Currently, I have three. I don't remember a time where I was only working one, okay? So even when I was a student in college and I only had one job, I was still a student in college, okay? So college students, I'm talking to you too here, your school is a job, right? It's work. It is what you are spending your energy on all the time. And college students, tell me if you can identify with this verse where he says, all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Amen? Amen. Most people, 
most people go to work at a job that they wish they did not have. It is incredibly common, surveys say, for people who work in office jobs to spend a great deal of their time at work looking for a different job, okay? Scrolling through indeed.com at your desk because you know this job is a dead end. I will never be happy here. There are people that say, just do what you love. Get paid to do what you love and then you'll feel like you never have to work a day in your life. If only it were that simple, okay? I love to watch Netflix. I can't get paid to watch Netflix. Maybe someone does. Maybe there are people who get paid to watch TV. I envy those people, okay? I am not those people. I am like the rest of us who actually have to do something productive whether I want to or not. I don't like having to leave my family every day to go to a job that ultimately does not matter, okay? I work at a pool, a swimming pool, okay? People get in, they swim and leave. I clean the water and clean the deck. And then you know what happens the next day? People get in the pool and they swim and then they leave and I clean up. In the scope of eternity, who cares, okay? It's a swimming pool. I am a 35-year-old pool boy. Did I ever think that I would be in that position? No. And all of my days are full of sorrow and my work is a vexation. (laughs) Now, I actually enjoy my job, so I'm not saying that the job is bad, but you get the point. The point is, we all have to go to work between the hours that we are at work, getting ready for work, commuting to and from work, we're talking about the majority of the time that we spend, okay? There's approximately 115 waking hours in a week. Even if you're only working 40, between those additional things, make it 50 or 60, Most of us are doing more than 40. So say you're working 40 to 60, and then you add commute, getting ready, to and from, all that stuff, and over half, for some of us, significantly more than half of your time is spent working. And we ask, what's the point? And college students sit in a class where they're like, what is the point of this class? I am never going to use this. I shared with you guys last week my inability to do basic subtraction. I have forgotten how to math because I'm a pastor and a pool boy and I never math, okay? There is no math except maybe counting. I can count how many people are here, no other math. And so I sat in math class for how many years? To never use it, especially math that involves letters. Once they brought letters into it, we all knew this is never going to be used, ever. He says, what's, what's the point? And, and, and even if, even if I like my job, 
Even if I go to work every day and I love it, even if it gains me so much stuff, even if going to work accomplishes for me everything that I wanted to accomplish, even if it makes me rich, even if I get to accumulate wealth because of it, then I'm going to die and somebody else is going to inherit that and they didn't work for it. I did. I'm not going to get to enjoy everything that I've earned and gained. I'm going to die and somebody else will. And he says, who knows if they're going to be wise or foolish? It's very possible that I could pass down all of my wealth and then it gets immediately spent, thrown away. And all the years that I spent trying to gain it, gone. What is the point? Toil, he says, does nothing but gathering wealth for someone else. So ultimately we get to this place where the preacher has now decimated these arguments of pleasure can make you happy, wisdom can make you happy, work can make you happy. He's like, listen, it's all bubbles. It's pointless. If all we've got is 70 years under the sun, it is pointless. No matter what you do, no matter what you fill your time with, you're on the Titanic, and the Titanic is sinking. Thankfully, this is not where we close the book. Thankfully, this is not where the preacher ends. Thankfully, he has more. Point number four. When your aim is to please God, he fills empty things with purpose and joy. When your aim is to please God, he fills empty things with purpose and joy. He takes the stuff that doesn't matter and fills it with mattering. He takes stuff that is passing away and he fills it with eternal purpose. So he's talked about the food and wine that he's had, the work that he's had, the the wisdom, and he's like, it's all bubbles, but then look at what he says beginning in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. He, ju- he just said toil's pointless. He just said, what has a man gained from the toil? Nothing. It's vexation. And then he says, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Apart from him, it's toil. Apart from him, it's bubbles. Apart from him, it's empty. But to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. To the one that pleases him, God gives wisdom. Okay, he talked about that. Knowledge, he talked about that. Joy, pleasure, satisfaction. To the one that pleases him, God says, here you go. It's for you. When we take the gift and we make it the point, 
We empty it of all that it is supposed to be. But when we enjoy the giver, then we can enjoy the gift. When we enjoy the giver, then we can enjoy the gift. There's uh, a phrase that Tim Keller uses. He, he uses this phrase, crushingly unrealistic expectations. And, and he places this phrase specifically on bubbles, things that pass away. In the sermon that I was listening to specifically, he was talking about relationships. And what he said was, if we take the, the eternal expectations of pleasure and meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and we put it on a person, they will be crushed under the weight of those expectations. No one can carry the burden of eternal joy except an eternal God. And that applies to everything that Solomon has pointed out here. Pleasure, work, and wisdom. These things given to us by God. Gifts given to us by God. In and of themselves cannot bear the weight of eternal joy. Only God can. And so when we take our eyes off of this and we put it on that, it's at that point that we can actually enjoy the things here. This, again, is why Solomon uses the phrase under the sun so many times. Because if pleasure for 70 years under the sun is all that there is, who cares? The ship is sinking. It's all bubbles. If, if living a good life as a good person for 70 years under the sun is all that there is, bubbles. If, if work for 70 years under the sun is all that there is, bubbles. But if there's more, if this is just the beginning, if this life under the sun is just the start of an eternal journey, then God can take these things that are transient and inject eternal joy into every single moment. I can do the pointless work of cleaning a pool deck every single day with eternal purpose and joy knowing that it's a gift. It's a gift. I get to spend every single day at the University of Notre Dame. I grew up obsessed with Notre Dame. And what did God do? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God said, you know what, buddy? I'm a good father. I'm going to send you for the rest of your life to Notre Dame. Even if, mean, even if it means you have to be a 35-year-old pool boy. And I've said to that as a kid, sign me up. I will be a pool boy at Notre Dame. God is a good father and he's giving me something to enjoy. And there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. For this also, I saw, is from the hand of God. My friends, no meaning can be found in anything under the sun without this. You can enjoy the things under the sun when you're looking at Him. He is the giver. 
don't worship the gift. Because if you do, if you make the gift the point, the gift is bubbles. Bubbles, bubbles, all is bubbles. The Titanic is sinking. But before it sinks, we can eat and drink and be merry because we know that the Carpathia is coming to rescue us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, I pray for each person under the sound of my voice. God, if there are people who are trying to find meaning in anything but you. God, if there are people who are watching online right now on Facebook. God, I pray that in this very moment you would speak to their hearts. That as they have listened to this, Lord, that your spirit would convict them. That your spirit would show each one of them where they're trying to find meaning. And if there are any watching, Lord, who have never found their hope in you, who have never taken their eyes off of the gift and put them on the giver, who have never come to a place where they've said, I want to be yours for all of eternity, God, I pray that tonight you would call them to yourself. I pray that tonight they would fall down on their knees and beg you to save them that they would accept your free gift of salvation, that that tonight, Lord, you would call them to yourself. God, I pray for all of us here and at home who may may be searching in, in, in other stuff for the fulfillment only you can give. God, I, I pray that you would convict us. You would show us the places where we're falling short, the the, the places that we're trying to add to you, the ways that we're trying to have Jesus and theology. I need Jesus and this. Lord, take that and away from any of us that have it. God, I just pray that you would meet us here, that your spirit would convict us, that your spirit would guide us, that you would call us to yourself. God, as we sing this final song in worship. Lord, I pray that it be an opportunity to spend a few moments completely alone in a crowded room with just you. And as we spend these next few moments alone with you, will you do whatever you want to do in each of our hearts? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship. Uh, nothing <laughs> is the answer, of course. Uh, but I pray that each of us would take these things to heart. That we would spend our days finding meaning in the giver rather than the gifts. And I hope one of the things that you guys understand about all of this is that the gifts aren't bad. Solomon is not telling us that these things are bad things. He, he's not saying that it's bad to have wisdom or to live a good life, or, or to even enjoy things, to eat and drink and have a glass of wine and, and spend time with your friends. And He's not saying that this stuff is bad. He's saying it's, it's bad to find your meaning and your value in them. It's not bad to have a job. It is bad to try to earn your value in your job, whatever that job is. Job, pursuit, sport, whatever. Fill in the blank. 
These are gifts given to us by God. Let's enjoy him so that he can give us the gift of enjoying those things. And when that happens, I'm telling you from experience, then you don't sit at your desk and wonder, why do I not have any happiness? Because it's not about the wrong job. It's not about the wrong relationship with another person. It's not about the lack of anything. It's about our focus on the Lord. When we have that, and we have our enjoyment in Him, we enjoy whatever it is that He gives us. So, let us accept that for ourselves. I encourage you to, to meditate on that stuff this week. If you have not already, start reading yourself through the book of Ecclesiastes. Because as we go through this stuff, I would love for you guys to be reading along and studying along, uh, asking questions along, bringing stuff up to say, hey, I really want to talk about this, um, so that we can learn from each other. So let me close this in prayer. God, thank you so much for the gift that you give us of enjoying you. God, I pray for every single one of us in this church that we would be people that enjoy you so much. And that as we do, Lord, you would give us eternal enjoyment in whatever we do under the sun. In whatever it is that we have as our job, in whatever social circle we're in, in whatever relationships that we're in, in in, in whatever place that we're in, wherever you put us and whatever we're doing and whomever we're with, Lord, I pray that you would give us eternal enjoyment in those gifts because we enjoy you first. And Lord, again, I ask that you would help each of us to identify, as your Spirit shows us, any place where we are failing to do that. Any place where we might be trying to find value in instead of in you. Help us to see those things. And and I, I pray that this week we would be praying over that stuff personally. God, I pray you would unite us together in, in a passion for Jesus. Lord, I pray for our college students. Lord, as they, uh, as they uh, do their finals this week, Lord, I pray that you would help them to, to do their best. Lord, I pray that you would help them to finish strong. And God, I pray that you would give them safe travel to their homes. Lord, that the next 10 weeks would be restful, re- refreshing, that it would be time spent with loved ones and, and, and being filled up. And Lord, I pray that that time would not be wasted. Help each one of these students to fill that time with good stuff, healthy things for their spirits let it be a time where they grow in you until we can all be back together again god i pray that we have been encouraged and equipped to live out the gospel every single day and god i pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church we pray all of this in jesus name amen amen you are dismissed